In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. To frame kind of what we're seeing in these first few verses, uh, I just need a little bit of an analogy, and that is a, an inaugural address. An inaugural address is that famous moment in American history where presidents present their vision of America and set forth their goals for the nation. One of the most highly anticipated, highly watched scenarios in our country is when the leader of the free world gets up and says, this is what I see for our nation going forth, and this is how we're going to get there. So important is it that hundreds of millions of dollars are often spilled for this single event, including tens of thousands of dollars on makeup. It's expensive. It's popular. Because of what it represents, where we're going, and who's going to take us there. I bring that up because that's a great analogy for what we're about to read here. This is an inauguration This is Jesus' inauguration by his father. And he has no budget, but he has all the power. Jesus, this is my first point, is God's inaugurated king. I want to read those first couple verses just to get them fresh in our mind. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately... He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. I've said this before, immediately is one of Mark's favorite words. He uses it some 50 or 60 times in the book of Mark. He's a very fast-paced writer. He skips a lot of the details that Matthew and Luke will include because he wants to get right to the point. And he also throws in words like immediately. It's like a fast-paced novel. And the first use of the term immediately is to bring you to this singular event which will start the gospel of Mark. Immediately what? Holy Spirit. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is a powerfully radical, even violent sounding scene in this gentle gospel. And what Mark is doing right here is he's quoting, he's nearly quoting or at least alluding to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, where the prayer of the prophet Isaiah is, Oh God, I wish that you would rend the heavens and come down. I wish that you would open up the heavens and come down to this earth. I wish and I long for a powerful display of God's presence in this mess, that was Isaiah's prayer. And almost word for word, Mark uses that same sentence to describe the coming of Jesus Christ. Not just his coming, but his choosing. 
See, all throughout the Bible, we see these themes of God's presence coming to earth. In the beginning, it was God's presence in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. Later, it was God's presence in a burning bush to Moses. After that, it was God's presence being manifest to God's people through a kind of a mobile unit, the tabernacle, moving from place to place. Later, that mobile unit would become permanent in the temple, and that's where God's presence touched down on earth. What Mark is trying to give us a picture of is that is happening again. At the time of this writing, for the first time in centuries, God's presence is coming to earth. But this time, it's not in a tabernacle, it's not in a burning bush, it's not in a garden, and it's not in a building. It's in a person. It's almost as if Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus is the new temple. He's certainly telling us that at precisely this point in verse 10, when the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, Jesus is precisely where heaven and earth intersect. And so we see a picture in the Gospel of Mark that God is inaugurating his son, Jesus Christ. What we should take from these first couple verses is that the Bible is telling us, hey, I know you've got a lot of gloom. I know you need a lot of solutions. I know you've got a lot of questions and you need answers for those questions. Look no farther than Jesus. Look no farther than Jesus. And hold all your other heroes lightly. In fact, as I look back on the last few weeks, I could describe it in terms of people holding their earthly heroes too tightly. In this case, it's our political ideologies. It's our tribes. It's our earthly heroes. We're holding them too tightly so that when they fail or when somebody else comes up with a differing opinion, it gets straight to the center of our identity. But what God is saying is his son is worthy of all of our allegiance. Hold your heroes lightly. Because God didn't inaugurate your heroes. He inaugurated his son. And one of the most difficult things for Christians today, at least in this zone, to do, I'm convinced... is to approach politics while remembering that Jesus is sovereign over all of those. You know you veered a little bit too far when your strategies for life look too much like the world's and not like Jesus. But God didn't inaugurate our tribes. He didn't inaugurate our parties. He didn't inaugurate our sides. He didn't inaugurate our labels. He didn't inaugurate even any of us. See, the truth is, Jesus is not on the right with you. Nor is he on the left. He's not even in the center. 
That's because there's no political category that fits him nicely. There's no area of politics that he fits snugly. Our politics don't have the space to maintain him. Our side of the aisle don't have the procedures to understand him. There's no legislation that can control him. There's no ideology that can encapsulate him. There's no algorithm that can automate him. There's no leader that can come close to him. There's no label that can explain him. He's just different. And he was chosen and inaugurated above all other earthly tribes and leaders as God's son and as God's king. Can I get an amen to that? That's why he said, my kingdom ain't of this world. It doesn't fit your categories. And yet he simultaneously tells us to pray for his kingdom to come to our world even as it is in heaven. He's, pray, he's asking us to pray for a confrontation, and not a violent one, but a spiritual one. And when it does, you should expect a confrontation, no matter what side you're on. Not a confrontation between God and your enemies, but a confrontation with God and your idols. And so when you ask, why doesn't Jesus always fit nicely into my politics? It's because, as Paul would say, the Father seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So... If God has inaugurated Jesus Christ as his king, maybe we should change the way we view our politics. And instead of asking, how come Jesus' politics don't always fit into mine, maybe we should ask, how come my politics don't always fit into his, and how can I change that by the power of the Holy Spirit? Then maybe we'll get the revival that we think we deserve. God didn't inaugurate anybody except for his king. And Jesus is God's inaugurated king. Now there's earthly inaugurations, there's earthly kings. We're called to submit in the right ways to all of them, but make no mistake. There is one king of kings and lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. And fresh on the heels of this is my second point. The path forward is often a test. It's often a struggle, which is a little bit counterintuitive, right? Jesus busts in on the scene as the king of kings and lord of lords. We expect a lot of fanfare, maybe overnight success, but the path forward is often a test. Let me read to you verse 12 and 13 where it says that the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. <laughs> and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. The angels were ministering to him. I, I want you to slow down lest we... we we skip over the significance of this verse. Verses earlier, Jesus was just coronated and inaugurated as the king of the world. And then, as if to empower him for everything that he will ever need, the spirit of God falls upon him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I ask for an outpouring of God's spirit upon me, I expect success, I expect breakthrough, I expect a lot of things to go my way. I do not expect to be driven into the wilderness. Can I get an amen? 
How many of you in this parking lot or at home watching on video have been in a wilderness at some point in the past year? When I'm in a wilderness, I tend to blame my circumstances, my environment, my enemies. But Jesus himself, the perfect sinless son of God, is not just in the wilderness by happenstance. He's driven there by the Holy Spirit. The path forward often involves a test. This is not always what we expect when we pray and ask God to move in our midst. But God's not cruel. He's not trying to ruin his son's day. He's preparing his son for a life well spent. He's preparing his son for a mission. Trial often precedes triumph, and the path forward often involves a test. What I want you to grab from this section of scripture is that if Jesus was tested, you will be too. If Jesus struggled, you will too. If Jesus ran into walls, if he experienced the wilderness, you will too. But it doesn't mean that it's because God doesn't love you or has abandoned you. It means that God is preparing you just like he prepared his son. And instead of throwing us into the deep end of the test and the struggle, he does that with his son first. And here's why Jesus' struggle is so good for us. I love that it says that he was in the wilderness for 40 days because that number keeps showing up all over the Bible. Moses on the mountain for 40 days. Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. 40. It's almost like a little breadcrumb that Mark leaves us saying at this point, God isn't just king, but he's a king that enters into the struggle of his people. He enters into the wilderness before you so that he could be with you and so that he could bring you through it. In fact, the Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tested in every way. So we don't just have this king who rules from an iron throne, who doesn't, who's not in touch with you, who doesn't know what you're going through. We have one who has absolute power, who knows everything that you struggled with and cares for you all the same. He's worthy of our allegiance, but he's also able to empathize. And if Jesus is God's inaugurated king, and the, the path forward involves a test, what we also need to see in the life of Jesus is that there is breakthrough on the other side. But we have to see that that breakthrough, that victory, comes solely through trust and faith in Jesus. Listen, if he can do the impossible, he can pull you through the impossible too. Now, the Gospel of Mark leaves out the actual temptation. He's just trying to get to the certain point. But if you read Luke and you read Matthew, you see that Satan tempted the Son of God with all the typical things that we are tempted with. Greed, power, glory. Things that we're tempted with and that we struggle with daily. And Jesus, though, with the grit of the Holy Spirit, is able to withstand all of those things. 
victory comes through Jesus. He is able to do the impossible. And if he can do the impossible, he can pull you through the impossible as well. You say, well, I can't make it through the week. Well, I know someone who can. You say, well, I can't fix my broken relationships. Well, I know someone who can. You say, I can't sustain joy in this environment. Well, I know someone who can. You say, well, I don't know how to keep it together. I know someone who can. You say, I don't know how to mend my broken heart. I know someone who can. God came down into our mess to do what we could not do for ourselves, put broken things back together. And he starts with broken people. And we might respond out of that with trust, saying, well, if I can't put my life together, if I could barely survive in the wilderness by myself, then maybe, maybe I should look to Christ in the midst of what I'm going through. Now, maybe some of you are saying, okay, I see that. Jesus is awesome. He's the king. He's inaugurated. He endured a test. He conquered the test, and he's perfect. Awesome. But I'm the one who needs a breakthrough. How does Jesus being all that he needs to be good for me? I'm the one who's struggling here. And here's my answer. Is that Jesus will end up calling you and I to follow and imitate him. You might be saying, what? That dude walked on water. He healed the sick. He resisted temptation. He was completely and perfectly loving. He opened his heart to the sick, to the poor, to the down, to the marginalized, to the ostracized. He was even able to interact with the proud Pharisees without losing his cool. I can barely turn on my news feed without losing my cool, some of you might say. How can we possibly expect to imitate the Son of God? What I want you to see in this temptation of Jesus is that even though we believe from the scriptures that Jesus is 100% God, he's also 100% human. And the wild thing about the temptation of Jesus is that he chose to endure the temptation of Jesus without using any of his God tricks. He chose to endure the temptation of Jesus and all the world could throw at him by living through it as a spirit-filled human being. And the Holy Spirit came upon him, overshrouded him. And God said, you are my son in whom I am pleased. And then he was driven by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What we're seeing here is Jesus showing us what life could look like when you're filled by the Holy Spirit. Paul would say to the Roman church, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead now dwells in your mortal bodies. 1 John 4, 4 says that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Meaning that the same inaugurated king who encounters and endures a test is also the same one who indwells our bodies. That's why Paul would later say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, in other words, 
I don't lose my life. I don't lose my identity. He'd go on to say the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up and loves me. Jesus calls us to imitate him, not as copycats, but as people who have been indwelt with his presence. In fact, one of the last things Jesus would say to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, after he lived a perfect life, after he modeled what life in the, in the spirit and in the kingdom looked like, after he died on the cross and rose from the dead, he would say in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm the king. He bookmarks his entire life by saying, I'm the king. But then he says, now you go. Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe everything that I have taught, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not just saying dunk people in the water, although that's a sign of what he's talking about. He's saying, I want you, empowered by my Spirit, to immerse people in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as represented by water baptism. I want you to bring people into my life. And then he ends that by saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm a king who's with you. Do the things that I did. I want to end this passage and this sermon by asking you maybe a challenging question. And the question is, I don't think that it's, before my question is a statement, is a preacher move, I know. I don't think it's difficult for us to make that intellectual leap in our minds to say, yeah, Jesus is king. And he did what I couldn't do so that I could have breakthrough on the other side. I don't think any of us would probably disagree with that. I think most of us would be like, yeah, that sounds normal. It's not the intellectual belief that's difficult. It's the rearranging of the furniture in our heart that's difficult. Because I can talk about this all day, but still not allow the spirit to change my life. And so I want to give you a different question. Not do you believe that this is true. But what have you inaugurated in your life that needs to come crashing down? If Jesus is king, there's a lot of stuff that needs to come crashing down. Can I get an amen to that? That was a quieter amen. It's okay, I get it. If Jesus wants to move in, then he needs to do some remodeling. And that might be challenging at first. The path forward is often a test. But if he is who he says he is, it's going to be one of the most beautiful remodels you've ever experienced. And so the question we should be asking is what have you inaugurated in your life that needs to come down? And ask Robert and the team to come up as we respond in worship. And as we respond, I want you to think of that because after this first song, I'm going to come back up just like we did last week. We're going to hand out 
during this song, we're going to hand out the elements, the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to take it together. And I want you to see on the front end what we're doing when we end up doing that. We are proclaiming that he is king over our lives and has full reign and authority to move the furniture around. And so before we actually do that, let's do that heavy lifting in our hearts right now by asking, Holy Spirit, examine my heart. See if there's anything wayward in me. Where have I trusted in other things? Where have I elevated other things above you? Where have I just missed it? What have I inaugurated in my life today that needs to come down? And the Holy Spirit will show you. And he'll show you because he loves you. And he wants 100% of you for himself. 